You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. We're going to be Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing our series titled Live. And the reason why the series is titled Live is because as we live life here on this earth, we want to know how to live and how to live life abundantly. We don't believe that we're left to some arbitrary stance to figure out how to live life on this earth, that we have to figure it out on ourselves and figure out how to have joy and figure out what it looks like to walk through life. We believe the creator himself stepped forth into humanity, and also he's given us his word. And in fact, the words we're reading today are, it's titled the Sermon on the Mount because it's a sermon that Jesus Christ, the creator himself, preached. And so again, we get to see how we're called to live. And I'll say this. The Sermon on the Mount takes the way that we view the world and it turns it upside down. But it does it in a way that is actually healthy. But for us, it seems just really weird. And honestly, it's really difficult. So today we're going to look at this as our main point is that grace is really hard. We could just say that grace is hard, but we believe grace is really hard. I grew up understanding this, that God's grace saves you. In other words, you can't do anything to save yourself. You come as you are. God takes you as you are. He welcomes you into his family, but at that point on, moving forward, you better cross your T's and dot your I's, because if you don't, God will be disappointed with you, and he's done with you, and you might get cast out. So my my understanding of the message of the gospel, which we call good news and of grace, was grace gets you in, but then at that point, once you're in, it's all up to you to maintain and hold on to your salvation, and you better watch it. And I know that's the same message that a lot of people grew up with. And so first, we even need to understand what grace is as we dive into the word this morning. So grace is this. It can be defined as a few ways. But one of the easiest ways to define, it's a one-way love, meaning this, it's not a two-way street. It's, it's God's love moving toward his children at all times, not based upon our actions. So giving grace is, a, is giving a gift that you don't deserve. Mercy is with, withholding something you do deserve, but grace is giving something that you don't deserve. We've used this illustration several times, but if I race down Willamette Street at 70 miles per hour, if I get pulled over and the officer says, I'm not going to give you a ticket, that's mercy. If the officer says, now I'm going to give you my car and the title to my home, we would go, that's grace. It's something that you haven't deserved. There's nothing you can tether any of your actions to and say, give me this because I've done this. It's something that goes so contrary to our world. When we see it, we're like, man, what is that? The Christian message is a message of grace. It doesn't make sense to the world. When we really understand it, grace should make you squirm because it's so, so counterculture. Everything in our life says, do this. This is the outcome. Grace is this. I've given this. Here's how we live in response. So this morning, we're going to look at that. The grace is really hard to embrace. We can see this. We can see this in the passage we're reading this morning. As we've worked through the Sermon on the Mount, we're, we're, we're concluding chapter five today, and we can notice one thing. It's getting tougher and tougher as you read through it. Again, Jesus has defined, hey, don't murder. And a lot of the Pharisees and scribes are like, yeah, got that one. And, but, but, but then he says, if you've hated, you have anger in your heart, then you're guilty of murder. And they're like, dang it. And then he says, don't commit adultery. And they're like, yeah, got that one. Jesus says, if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. Dang it. I'm going to say today, it is the hardest one so far that we're going to look at. Because we're going to look at retaliation, and we're going to look at this, loving our enemies. 
loving our enemies. It's really, I don't know anything more difficult than what the text is calling us to do today. And just to make sure that we know how difficult it is, it ends with this, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So just in case you're wondering, maybe, I, I, maybe I'm doing it, then Jesus makes it clear that you're not by calling us to the kind of perfection that God himself has. We, we see that it's difficult in the context of relationships to even extend grace. My wife and I get in arguments about the stupidest stuff, board games. And we have argued over Monopoly. I was crushing her just humbly one time in Monopoly. <laughs> Some could say I was monopolizing the board. And in that moment, she, she's kind of out of money and stuff like that. And I'm like, well, if you want, I'll let you slide on this one if you give me like a 20-minute back massage, you know, stuff like that. And she's like, well, I'm not playing. I'm, I'm not doing this. This feels wrong. It's not even how the game has worked and stuff like that. And so next thing you know, it's, it's an argument about Monopoly and the way that I'm approaching the game. We do catchphrase. If you want to bring out everything unholy and every colorful word inside of me, let's play catchphrase. Because there's nothing more stressful than that beeper going down and then fighting about who the beeper was with. If you're not familiar with this argument thing, it's basically when two people fight about their point of view being correct, and the other person is trying as hard as they can to help the other person see that their view is actually correct. And then the more that they don't see that, the more angry the other person gets while still trying to convince them. So both are doing this at the same time. No one during the heat of an argument goes, at, at, at least I don't. One, I don't go, you know what? That's a good point of view. I will argue once, I, even though I know I'm defeated, I'm like, I'm in this thing, I'm committed. But even at that, I don't reach toward my wife and go, you know what? I love you. Wrap my arms around her and start praying for her. What Jesus is going to say this morning isn't even in the context of our closest relationships, our friendships, our spousal relationships. It's actually about enemies. That's why we're like, if we understand what he's saying, this is really, 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 really hard. Let's pray and we'll dive in. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we aren't left with trying to figure out how to make this life work. But thank you for this that your word shares one message from Genesis to Revelation. One story, one theme that we can trace, redemption and reconciliation through and in, not our actions, but the actions and life of Christ. Jesus, thank you. We have not lived a life of perfection. We have not lived a life of obedience, but you did, and you've supplied that life for us and took the place that we deserve to be. Help us to leave here today understanding how amazing grace is. I pray that we wouldn't just sing songs about it. I pray that we wouldn't just share about it. I pray that our lives would be lived in such a way that exemplifies grace to our church family, but also to the rest of the world. Father, I thank you this morning for a display of your grace. Even in watching Hunter, though after a loss just around a week ago up here, God, it shows that she has a satisfaction in you, Jesus. It shows that we don't have to grieve like the rest of the world. And I'm thankful for that. Thank you for our church family. Thank you for this time this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. We'll pause here and then read the rest in just a minute. Jesus is, is, is unpacking this in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye. This is what we call the lex telionis. 
which means the law of retaliation. That's the Latin for it. Lex talionis. That's what it is. An eye for an eye. That's what Jesus is unpacking here. We get this from the Old Testament. God's law, his civil law, came to the nation of Israel to tell them how to best live life, how life should be governed in the land. God provided that law for them, and it covered numerous things. God's civil law covered perjury. It covered manslaughter, personal injury, property violations, and all that. The purpose of God's law, and even the Lex Telionis, is this is to actually restrain evil, to keep evil from spiraling out of control. It was meant to give a punishment that actually fit the crime. And instead of having jails filled with people that were uh, being cited for uh, theft and stuff like that, it actually made them provide restitution. So this was God's civil law. And it was good because it kept people from spiraling out of control. It kept consequences. And it kept someone from going like this. You knocked out one of my teeth, I'm going to knock out six of yours. You killed one of my oxen, I'm going to kill your whole herd. You see, the way that this law worked, an eye for an eye, the Lex Telionis was like this. If you take and steal one of my oxen, then what you have to do is you have to provide my oxen back. But that's not where it stops you also have to give me one of yours. You see, the way this worked was that's what I would have lost if you would have done this to me. And so not only do you have to restore mine, but you have to give me what I would have lost as well. Modern day, if you steal my car, you not only have to give me my car back, but you have to give me yours because that's what I would have lost. You see, God's law was good in the sense of what I'm saying. It restrained evil. But again, it also provided an appropriate consequence that suited the crime. With that said, Jesus is always, always going after the heart. That's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is, is if you read the Sermon on the Mount purely intellectually, or like the Pharisees and scribes did externally, and and think, man, I'm nailing this. I got this. You're missing it. And in fact, Jesus even says this. You have heard that it was said, 38, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Anytime Jesus says this at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, we get it. But I say to you, uh (laughs) uh-oh. Because again, when he said, but I say to you, he's showing this. You know what the Pharisees and scribes are saying and what their superficial version of the law is. Let me tell you what it means at a heart level. That's what he's doing. And he's saying, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other one also. This has been one of the most confusing verses throughout Christianity. In fact, this has been abused in such a way to make people become a doormat for women to suffer abuse under men, but that's not what it means. You have to understand historical context when we read our Bible. The Jews were living underneath Roman oppression. They were ruled by the Roman government. And so when Romans would get in fights with other Romans, a Roman soldier with another Roman soldier, he would slap him like this, or he would punch him with his right hand. That blow would land on the left side because he saw him as an equal. The way Romans let others know they were inferior to them was to backhand them. So the ways that Romans would treat Jewish people was they would backhand them. Thus, that strike or that blow lands on the other side, the right side of the cheek. And so what Jesus is saying to them is he's saying, hey, when they treat you as though you're inferior, turn to them the other cheek. He's not saying become a doormat. He's not saying you have to suffer abuse. He's not saying... You have to endure stuff like that. What he is saying is this. He's saying when someone treats you as less than human, who doesn't offer you the same sort of human dignity, turn the other cheek to them 
And through doing that, what you are doing is gonna do a work on their conscience because now you're saying to them, treat me as though I have human dignity and worth that's equal to yours. So he's saying, do that and then start to move on their conscience. He's not saying retaliate. He's not saying punch them back. He's saying, turn to them the other cheek. And in doing so, what you can start to do is you can do what the Proverbs say. You can heap burning coals on someone's head. They're not saying pour burning coals on someone's head. That was a sign of weeping and grieving. What, what you can start to do is start to do a work on someone's heart. That's what grace does. It slowly or sometimes quickly, radically softens, mends, and heals people's hearts and lives. Again, this isn't saying that we don't stand up for the orphan or for the widow or against the bully or for justice. What it's saying is that we don't repay evil for evil. And what this was really about in this culture of shame, it was about honor and it was about respect. And so many times we still understand that today. Oftentimes the the reason we get into fights and arguments and we're defensive has little or nothing to do with God's glory and his kingdom, but everything to do with, I don't like the way you're talking to me. I deserve to be treated like this. I should be treated like this. Someone should only talk to me this way. And so we respond this way because we have this thing called pride. And our pride says, "Uh uh-uh. And when someone wounds our pride, what we do back is, or what we do to them is we retaliate. Think about this. What do you do when a server doesn't treat you right in a restaurant? How dare them treat me like that? No tip or a less tip. What about when your boss doesn't appreciate you? What about when your spouse says something to you in a way that you don't like? If we spent more time with that sort of energy and effort fighting for the kingdom of God and for other people's souls to live faithfully into who they are in Christ, man, what an impact it would have on our world. But instead, a lot of our time is fighting for what we think we deserve and the way we think we deserve to be talked to. How about Christ, who literally created saliva that was then used to spit upon his face, who had his beard ripped out, who was called names, the king of the universe comes to earth, the creator of the very humans who's breathed life into their bodies is here in flesh and blood. And the way we treat him is by mocking him, pulling his beard out and spitting upon him. If there was a person and the only person that should demand respect and honor, it's the king. So Jesus is going to become a living example of what it looks like not to live with a sense of retaliation at the end of his life. Then it says this, verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. We live in a culture now where it's like people are suing everyone. What Jesus is saying, if someone sues you for your tunic, that was your inner garment. We have to understand this. They don't have claws. They didn't have closets look like our closets. They had essentially, most Jewish people had like two sets of clothes. What it consisted of was an inner garment called a tunic and then an outer garment called a cloak. You also wore that at night as your blanket. And so Jesus is saying, when someone sues you for your tunic, give him your cloak as well. He's not saying freeze to death or anything like that, but he's saying, use this thing called grace. They don't deserve this. They're not even asking for it. But what you can do is give them something they don't deserve and let their heart soften. Doesn't this fly against everything we know and like? I mean, I YouTube videos of bullies getting beat down. Like, I love watching it. I really do. The bigger the beat down, the, the better I feel. In fact, I was reading this morning on a pastor that's being restored to a pastoral position that I do not think should be restored to a pastoral position. I was reading about some of the hurt that he's caused and haven't seen things that have led to some sort of repentance or anything like that. And this morning, I was just like in rage reading this and listening to this. 
And I was like, oh, man, yeah. It's really difficult to pray for people like that, much less give them grace. Look here as he goes on. If anyone forces you in 41 to go one mile, go with him two miles. What's this? Roman soldiers could task you with this. Carry my weapon or carry my tools, carry my stuff for a thousand steps. They could ask any Jewish person to do that anytime. So imagine this, the very stuff that they're using to oppress you with, they can ask you to carry for them. And Jesus is saying this, after they ask you to go those, that, that thousand steps, offer to go with them 2,000, 1,000 more. How hard would that be? Carrying the stuff that people are using? Imagine how ticked off the zealots are. The zealots were the class of people that were like, let's overthrow the government. Jesus is going to be the way to do it. And he's like, we're going to overthrow it by grace. We're going to do something that actually can save and transform people's hearts and lives. We're going to do this. And we're like, oh, man, but I would like it to look like this. And Jesus is like, this is it. And that's to the people that view themselves as superior. So in 42, he transitions in this. What about those in society that are less than you? They're, they're, they're poorer than you. He says this, give to those who beg from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I don't think in any way this means that every time a homeless person comes up to you that you should give them money. In fact, I would say you shouldn't give them money because what you can oftentimes do is enable someone to live into their addictions. I, do, addictions. I don't believe that's what is at play here and what Jesus means. This is what he means. Do you actually give to people and, and give grace to people or give blessings to people because in the end, you know they can give you something in return? Or do you ever give grace to people? Do you ever bless people with, uh, with something who have no ability to return payment in any sort of way to you? In fact, one of the things that we do as pastors at our elders meetings is we confess in and then we speak the gospel into each other's lives. But what if you spent the rest of your life speaking the gospel to someone else's life and no one ever returned the gospel to you? You see, every time I do this, someone does it in return for me. Could you do it if no one ever does it in return? Or could you say, hey, I'm going to have you over for dinner, knowing that the person you're having over for dinner has no way to ever offer anything back to you? Saying again, this is a model and a picture of grace. It's really hard, and it goes against what the world says. You know that as Christians, we want grace. We want it bad. But when it comes to the way that we want the world dealt with, it's not typically that we think grace is enough or how it should be dealt with. Give grace to me, but let's overthrow these people with power, do something like this. And Jesus is like, you want to know what will actually transform society? It's grace. The same thing that transformed your heart, that saved you, the same thing that keeps saving you is the same thing that has an impact on society at large. But it's really, really hard because grace is really, really hard. Let's keep moving on. Verse 43. I'm going to read this section, 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Love your enemies. I know I've used this movie because it's one of my favorites, but it just gives such a great picture of grace. The Last Samurai, okay? In this movie, you have Captain Ongren, played by Tom Cruise. And he is tasked to go in and take out the samurai people, led by Katsumoto. They get 
whooped, Captain Algren does, against the samurais. I mean, whooped. He's the only survivor left. Then they take him back to his village. The very man who was trying to kill them, and in fact did kill some of them, in fact killed one woman's husband, he's taken back to live in their village, and he's taken and placed inside of her house for her to care for him. The very man who killed her husband is now inside of her home, and she's tasked to provide care for him, love him, and he's a drunkard. So she's helping him through sobriety. He's, he, he's, he's detoxing. It's his painful process. She's providing care for him. And not just that, but Katsumoto is too. He's caring for his enemy. Yes, he does have some mixed motives because he's learning from his enemy, but he's providing care. Finally, Captain Algren freaks out. He's like, why are you guys doing this for me? And, then he, and, and, he, and he asks, who is the woman that takes care of me? And he finds out, and there's a shift that happens. He's like, the man that you killed on the battlefield, that is his wife. And he's like, whoa. His life starts to change at that point. Why? Because this powerful transforming agent of grace that is really hard started to soften him. And as we read what, what Jesus is saying here is, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Man, I was challenged with that this week. Someone who I felt like discriminated against me was treated me poorly. I was left even talking with my wife going, Man, how hard is it to pray for people? How hard is it to love people that treat you like this? It's really, really difficult. What Jesus is, is saying here is really, really hard. But he goes on to say that this proves that you're sons of God. When you model the kind of grace for others that I model for you, that, in a sense, proves and gives proof to spiritual maturity, to spiritual growth. The, the moment we can start to extend grace in the ways that we have received it, is a beautiful thing. Love your enemies. Let's make this really radical for a minute because that's what it is. This isn't love the ethnic minorities. This is love the white supremacist. Think about that. This isn't love the person who's conservative with you. This is love the person who is a hostile as far left as you can possibly go. This isn't love a stranger. This is love someone, as the word persecute is uh, uh, can also be translated, someone harasses you and wants to hunt you down. Love that person. It is a radical call that is really hard. In other words, do this. Have the kind of people in your home and going into other people's homes to where the rest of the world goes, whoa, what are, what are they doing hanging out with them? Because Jesus had tax collectors in his home. The outcasts of society, he hung out with drunkards. He was a friend of sinners, and society, especially the Christian community, was going, what are you doing hanging out with these people? Rarely do we ever see ourselves, as Scripture paints us, though, that we were enemies of God, and only his grace saved us. Again, he says in 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and unjust. This is what we call common grace. But again, Jesus is not saying love, love the outcast because our society can do pretty well with that. Jesus is again saying, love the person that is persecuting the outcast. Love the person that is persecuting you. Love the person who is hating you. Pray for them. Why? Is it possible that the creator of the universe knows this, that by you getting bitter and starting to hate them, that will actually warp your soul and it will warp your heart. In time, bitterness will grow. And what will happen is this, is you will slowly deaden your conscience, your heart will slowly become callous and you will become cold. What Jesus is saying is this, don't give people power over you. 
Don't give him that kind of power over you. There's something that happens when we start to give grace to our hearts. And we can trust that what God does with the other person's heart as well. But he's saying, look, as God, the creator of the universe, he's like, I supply rain and sun that supplies crops and foods uh, and food for who? For people that worship false gods, for people that are enemies of mine, for people that run after everything else, for people that have straight up denied and rejected me, he goes, hey, I still bring sun for them. I still bring rain for them. So if the God of the universe who deserves all glory and all honor can do that, can we as the creatures? Look here, 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Again, what Jesus is saying is like anyone can do that. Loving people who love you, not hard. He goes, even the tax collectors, the lowest, scummiest people in the society at that time, they do that. Good job. (laughs) And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Think about this. Who do you move toward inside of this church family? It's a good question. Again, I want to I push into some things and challenge it here. But if someone walks in the door with something that totally opposes, with a shirt on or hat on that totally opposes or goes against everything you think is right, will you move toward them? When it's time of greeting, this is going to be a challenge. Some of you guys aren't going to like it. Do we remove ourselves and move toward people? And specifically, do we move toward people that might be different than us, that might think differently than us? Because again, that's also a reflection of Christ's love for the stranger. And again, he just backs it up. He's like, look, even Gentiles do this. He he closes it out. In case you don't realize at this point that we're not good at doing this whole grace thing and that it's really hard, he just makes it super clear. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Who's, 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 I mean, who's doing that one? Be perfect as God himself is perfect? No one. We can't. We have a deep desire within us to be perfect, to be good. That's because we're created in the image of God. And, and at one point, when we lived with him in the garden, things were that. And so our attempt is to figure out how to get back to the garden without Jesus Christ. Our religious acts, our rituals, our good merits, our good things that we can lay claim to. But he's like, it's never going to be it. You have to be utterly perfect. So here's the question. Don't raise your hand. How many of you are utterly perfect, like God? My, my hope is no one would raise, <laughs> if you did, I don't think anyone wants to be around you, just to be honest. <laughs> that sort of self-righteousness is appalling. Be perfect, as God himself is perfect. That's the standard. So you have two, either be completely perfect like God, or you're not. And if we can say we're not, that means all of us are over here. And so how do we get over there? One way and one way only by the grace of God and Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ loved his enemies. In fact, that's us who have placed our trust and faith in Jesus Christ because at what time we were. Let me read this quote first by Alfred Plummer and then unpack what we see in scripture. Alfred Plummer says this, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. To love as God loves is moral perfection. Only one person can and has ever loved like this. The love that is unpacked here to love your enemies is what we call an agapaho love, an agape love, an unconditional love. Jesus Christ loved his enemies like this. Jesus Christ, every moment of every day that he walked and lived this earth, loved his enemies and prayed for those that persecuted him. You want to talk about someone who was 
hated and persecuted for just about everything was Jesus Christ. But he lived that life of doing this. And in fact, were those people. Romans 5.10 says this, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Do you realize that? That before God saves you by his grace and faith in Jesus Christ, we're called enemies. Why? Colossians 1, 21 and 22 says this, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Romans 8, 5 through 8 says this, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Ephesians 2, we won't read it, says this, that you were dead in your trespasses. Not just barely hanging on, dead. So how do you go from dead enemy, hostile in mind, to moral perfection? Jesus Christ lives that life and he goes to the cross. And who he goes to the cross for are us who are the enemies of God, who have not loved our enemies who do not love with this agape sort of love. And what he does is he takes the punishment that we deserve. But here's what he does. He applies the fullness of his perfection to our life. So this verse right here, read it again. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect is now true of you in Christ. He didn't just like stick a little bit of perfection on you that can be brushed off. He stuck the utter full perfection of God and made it yours. He stuck it to you. It's yours. You can't knock it off. You can't get rid of it. You can't budge or figure out how to just wiggle your way out of it. It is stuck to you permanently. You have not a small measure, not a fraction, the full measure of God's holy perfection given to you, not because you trust in your moral efforts or how well you love people, because you trust in Jesus Christ. You know that God sees those that have placed their trust and faith in Jesus Christ as though you love your enemies perfectly? Think about that. God looks at you and sees enemy lover, someone who prays for those that persecute them. Not because we do this. We suck at this. It's because Jesus Christ did this for us perfectly. Grace is really hard, but it's the Christian message. It's a message of grace. Imagine this. Imagine you're out in the woods. Your clothes get wet. You start to get hypothermia. What happens with hypothermia is after your internal temperature drops below 95 degrees, you actually start to feel like you're getting warm again. In fact, they have found people who died of hypothermia, their clothes folded up next to them. What happens is this is your body starts to shut down. You start to freeze to death. So imagine you're in the woods getting hypothermia and you start to freeze. Your heart, everything turns cold. You breathe your last breath. That's all you remember. What happens in this moment is a, is a man picks you up and takes you inside of a cabin, sets you next to a blazing hot stove and your body thaws. Your heart thaws, your limbs thaw, life comes back into you. You understand that in this moment you were incapable of doing what you needed most. This man brought you to the fire and the fire supplied the life to you that you need. Now imagine this, this time you go to leave that cabin and weirdly enough, that stove or that fire follows you. No matter where you go, no matter where you wander, you can't shake that stove. It's fire, it's heat is the source of your life that's constantly supplied to you. It's warmth is always there. You, are, you aren't in control of the fire. Whether you wander this way, wander this way, whether you're doing good things in the woods or bad things in the woods, what is happening to you in the, in, 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 for the rest of your life 
is that stove and the heat that it supplied is attached to you. It's a picture of what Christ has done. We were dead. He brought us and reconciled us to God who pours out his love for us infinitely. And there's nothing we can do through our actions to shake God's love. We can't outrun it. We can't wander from it. There's not a place where it turns cold to us. We have the fullness of God's love and affections and approval because of what Christ has done and because of what God has done in his grace. You don't maneuver your way outside of God's blazing love and heat for you. Grace is hard, really hard, because everything in our culture, our parents, everything, is when you mess up, they're displeased. When you mess up, it's this is what you get. When you do good, this is what you get. The message of Christianity is really, really hard. Really hard, harder than what you think. It's hard to embrace because it goes against anything else that we've ever experienced. But it's also what we're called to receive and it's also what we're called to give. You, from this moment on, if you've placed your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, are defined not as sinner, but as saint. And you can't cool off God's love for you. So how do we live in response to it? Let me just give a few things as we wrap up. God doesn't just offer grace and mercy for failure, but hope for success. Okay, God doesn't just offer grace and mercy for failure, but he offers hope for success. The most loving, kind, powerful human being in all of existence lives inside of the Christian, the Holy Spirit, who empowers you to start to love like God does. So we ask the Spirit for his help. Instead of hating enemies, maybe view enemies like this. Number two, enemies provide us the opportunity to start to love like Christ. Enemies can provide an opportunity for you to start to, to, start to love and display Christ's love for us. Third, pray. Pray that grace would transform your heart. It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. That's, uh, that, that's what the author Paul says. Pray that grace would transform your heart, but start to pray for other people's hearts who you hate or despise, or have a really hard time with, and trust what God does with that inside of your own heart. So pray for other people, and, and instead of worrying about how much they're going to be transformed, trust in the transformational work that God's going to do in that process to your own heart. I lied. There's two more. We're going to have a hard time with this, loving like this, unless we get into people's space. Christians, we got to get out of our Christian bubbles and get into the lives of people who don't know Christ. It's four. Last, if there's one thing in life that it's okay to be wounded, hurt, or crushed, it's your pride. If there's one thing in life it's okay for it to be hurt, crushed, or wounded, it's your pride. Maybe check yourself on this in the future. Is what they're saying to me something that just hurts and wounds my pride? And is that okay? Because my pride getting crushed is actually a good thing because now I'm able to live out of my identity in Christ instead of fighting to prove my worth. Let's pray. God, we recognize your grace is really hard, but you're perfect at it. Let us turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna send us to communion this week with, with a final quote from Frederick Buchner. It says this, I love this. The love for equals is a human thing. A friend for friend, brother for brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely. The world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail, to rejoice without envy with those who rejoice. The love of the poor for the rich, of the black man for the white man, 
the world is always bewildered by its saints. And then there is a love for the enemy, love for the one who does not love you, but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torture. This is God's love. It conquers the world. 